But I want to look at a passage this morning that talks about how desperately sinful we are, just so that we have a, a good idea of what a serious problem human depravity is. And uh, last week we looked at Psalm 17. This morning I want to go back a few pages, look at Psalm 14. Psalm 14. That's our text for this morning, and it's a familiar one. This is actually one of two nearly identical psalms that start out this way. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, you might think, well, this is a message for atheists. This really doesn't apply to me. But here is the disturbing thing about this psalm. It is explicitly applied to each one of us. This psalm is about the universality of human depravity and unbelief. In fact, this is one of the key texts in the Old Testament that talks about the doctrine of depravity and the fallenness of the entire human race, and it makes clear that at the very core of our sin problem is a rebellious heart of unbelief. There's an element of atheism in every one of our hearts, and this psalm exposes that reality. It condemns us all, and it shows in the plainest possible language, how thoroughly and completely sinful we are. You know, that I quoted last week that verse in Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, which I frequently quote, which says, the, the carnal mind is enmity against God. You can ask some of the same people who say, yeah, of course I'm a sinner, everybody's a sinner. And most of them will say, no, I'm not at enmity with God. I love God or I love the idea of God. But this psalm says we don't. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8 says we don't. This is a truth we don't often think about, and we don't like to think about it because it brings us face-to-face with the reality and the seriousness of our guilt, but we are as thoroughly depraved as any wicked person you can think of. Our wickedness may not manifest itself like the typical gross criminal would, but Scripture says... There is enmity in our hearts against God, and there's no way to escape the verdict of this psalm. Here we see the awful state of all humanity apart from the grace of God, and we learn that if God did not intervene to bestow His grace on us, all of us, all of us would be as contemptible in our evil doings as the most base, degenerate criminal who ever lived. Again, there's atheism in our hearts. And this is not an easy truth to confront, much less to embrace the truth of it with a whole heart and confess what it says about us. Our tendency is to look for excuses, to to tell ourselves, we're not really, I'm not really as bad as what the psalmist is is telling us we are. Or worst of all, we look at others and tell tell ourselves we're not as bad as they are. Scripture says we are. So as we work our way through this text this morning, let yourself be convicted by what it's saying. Embrace the truth of this psalm with a chastened and repentant heart, because any other kind of response to this text simply proves that you are indeed infected with exactly the kind of unbelief that is exposed and condemned by the psalm itself. Now, a couple of background comments about this psalm before we get into the text. First, notice the inscription. I always point out these inscriptions to you. Depending on what Bible you use, the inscription 
should be printed probably in small text just before the opening words of the psalm itself, or if you're using the ESV, it's printed in small caps at the start of verse 1. And you know that not all of the psalms have inscriptions, but many of them do, and this is part of the inspired text. The inscription here says, to the choir master of David. Psalm 14 is the ninth of 53 psalms in the Psalter that are dedicated to the choir master, or if you're using a different translation, it might say to the chief musician. If we contextualized it to us, we would say to Clayton Herb. (laughs) And I've pointed out before when we've studied the various psalms, the dedication here to the minister of music means that this is a psalm that was not intended mainly for private use or merely for private use, but it was to be sung in the assembly. It was appointed to be sung by the great choir in public worship. Over the years here, we've studied Psalm 51 and Psalm 13, and both of those psalms are also dedicated to the chief musician. Psalm 51, most of you will recall, I think, is that penitential psalm. It's a psalm of repentance where David confesses the reality of his own personal sin. Psalm 13 is very much like Psalm 17 that we looked at last week. It's a sigh of despair that ends with a song of triumph. And I'm pretty sure I've commented in the past how strange it seems, especially against the backdrop of our 21st century evangelical culture with, you know, our irrepressibly happy worship music and man-centered worship music, how out of step with our concept of worship, the psalms of lament and psalms of complaint were employed in public worship. Psalm 51 is a very personal record of David's repentance. It's full of personal shame, deep sorrow not the kind of thing that most of us would ever think of making into a congregational hymn or a, or a praise chorus or, or an anthem for the choir. And Psalm 13 begins with a complaint, a deep frustration about the way God often delays coming to the aid of His people. And this psalm, our psalms, strikes me as maybe even an, an even more unlikely candidate for public singing. This is a purely doctrinal psalm containing little or no praise. This is not a praise chorus. It's a musical lament. It's a dirge, really, on the themes of fallenness and corruption and guilt. It is a bitterly sorrowful song teaching an important doctrinal lesson about the utter fallen sinfulness of all humanity, not exactly material for making a joyful noise unto the Lord. In other words, the the doctrine this psalm deals with is the doctrine of human depravity, and it's a distasteful truth, but a necessary one. And remember, the psalms are songs of worship, and, and the very starting of worship is the confession of our sin, not just a reciting of specific acts of sin, but the wholehearted confession that we are thoroughly sinful. We aren't just guilty because of things we've done, but our true guilt, and we learned this this week in Shepherd's Conference when we looked at original sin, our true guilt lies in the awful reality 
that we are sinful at the very core of our being. It's not just about things we've done. It's about who we are. To use the common expression of Calvinist teaching, we are totally depraved. And this is a hymn about total depravity. It's a song of humiliation and confession and woe. And the psalmist is clearly not aiming here to write a popular song. This is not a upbeat little ditty. This is not one of those repetitive choruses that you're going to find at a charismatic praise conference. There's just no way to make this doctrine appealing or attractive to the human mind. It's a doctrine that utterly disgraces and and abases us. It's not something we celebrate. And yet, as I said, the very first confession made by every truly worshiping heart is an affirmation that our own hearts are helplessly fallen and miserable and we are totally powerless to redeem ourselves. This is not the not the kind of stuff you'll typically hear coming from the average praise band. And yet, here this psalm is in a prominent place in the Psalter, put there for singing in public worship. And furthermore, as I said at the very start, you'll find that Psalm 53 is almost identical to this one. The most pronounced difference between this psalm and Psalm 53 is that Psalm 14 uses Yahweh as the name for God, and Psalm 53 uses Elohim. That's the main difference. Other than that, the two psalms are essentially the same with with just slight variations in the wording. Both of them are addressed to the chief musician, and so this psalm, which may seem totally unsuitable for public worship from our postmodern perspective, it seems to have been a familiar and frequently sung elegy in the corporate worship of Israel, because there's two versions of it. And as if to underscore the importance of this psalm, the Apostle Paul cites it as the definitive centerpiece of the argument he's making in his exposition of the doctrine of human depravity in Romans chapter 3. When Paul gets into depravity, this is the psalm he goes to. Now remember, this is an inspired hymn, which suggests to me that didactic hymns, that is, hymns that, songs that teach doctrine are just as appropriate in worship as songs of direct praise to God. Augustine taught, and, and some people to this day believe, that nothing but praise to God should ever be sung in public worship. But here we see that God Himself inspired songs whose sole purpose was to teach doctrine, in this case, doctrine about us. It is too bad, I think, that today is so much of the hymnology that has accumulated in the church over really the past century and a half has more or less abdicated this didactic role. Most of the gospel songs that dominated our grandparents' generation were expressions of personal experience and testimony. You know, I'm standing on the promises when the role is called up yonder, since Jesus came into my heart you know, up to and including, He touched me. There's nothing wrong with songs of testimony, but sometimes the content gets pretty thin, you know. I hate that song, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. It doesn't say anything that's distinctively Christian. Or there's a church in the valley by the wildwood, you know, now I am happy all the day. Uh, And I hesitate to offend 
people in my generation, the geriatrics, right? <laughs> but some of the songs we grew up with are actually worse than some of the contemporary stuff. More recently, we've seen a flood of shallow praise choruses. Many of them are... Some of them are good and biblical, but, but they tend to rely too heavily on, you know, simple repetition. Some of them turn out to be songs about me, you know, here I am to worship, or, or this is the air I breathe, or that classic song of praise, I'm special, which includes these unforgettable lines, help me to know deep in my heart that I'm your special friend. We sing stuff like that. My favorite hymns are the ones with a more didactic purpose, the ones that contain doctrinal content. Their aim is to teach us something or affirm something that we know is true about God or His way of salvation, immortal, invisible, God-only-wise. And there are contemporary examples of this as well, the power of the cross in Christ alone before the throne of God above. Scripture tells us in Colossians 3.16, that one of the primary purposes of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is for teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, which means that our singing should engage the heart and the mind as well as the feelings. And sometimes, as in the case of this psalm, the purpose of our worship is not to make us feel good, but to convict us and to make us actually feel bad about ourselves and thereby remind us of our desperate need for the grace of God. That's a legitimate and even necessary part of true worship. And so the theme of this psalm is the doctrine of human depravity. I don't know any modern songs about human depravity, but this one is, and it declares not only the loathsome wickedness of sin, but also and more difficult for us, it declares the universality of human depravity. Again, it's not merely that everyone sins as if we are fundamentally good, but we slip up from time to time. No, the condition of fallen humanity is much worse than that. There is none who does good, the psalm says. And this entire psalm is a relentless denunciation of all humanity, ending with a plea for salvation, which can only come from God because, as the psalm makes clear, we're incapable of saving ourselves. And that's why in Romans 3, when Paul is making the point that all of humanity is thoroughly depraved, he quotes this psalm as the cornerstone of his argument. Jews and Gentiles and religious pagans alike, he says, all of us. You're going to see that because one of the key points of this psalm is that the taint of sin on humanity is universal. All have sinned. All fall short of God's standard. Worse, it's the nature of each and every person to hate God. And, and sinners invariably attempt to depose the true God and replace Him with gods of their own making. Whether they're consciously aware of it or not, every person is guilty of that. That's the very definition of sin in the first place. It's rebellion against the one true God. And that's the message of this psalm. The fool says in his heart, no, God. Not merely a description of theoretical atheism. This is an expression that encompasses every kind of practical atheism, including every expression of rebellion against God and the, and the stance of anyone who ever tells God no. And the central lesson is that 
humanity's rejection of God is sheer folly. It's irrational. It's defiling and debasing and ultimately self-destructive, but we all do it anyway. All humanity follows precisely the same wrong path. Verse 1, there is none who does good. Now, someone will say, but I always thought this psalm is describing the folly of atheists, you know, people who just deny God's existence. Well, it certainly includes that. Atheism is the ultimate expression of human depravity, as you see in Romans 1, the natural tendency of the human heart to suppress knowledge of God, to deny that Uh, to deny what we know about Him, what's obvious about Him, to cast Him in the form of an image that is something infinitely less than He is. That's our tendency. But Paul says of sinful humanity in Romans 1.28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. That's the direction in which our sinfulness draws us, and it's often expressed as full-fledged atheism the denial of the existence of God. But what the psalmist describes here covers far more than just extreme expressions of philosophical atheism. And in fact, I would suggest that what he primarily has in mind here is practical atheism. And verse 1 in the Hebrew literally translates to this, the fool has said in his heart, no, God. If you think about it, you'll see that All forms of disobedience are really a form of practical atheism, because if you really believe that God is God and that all He says is true and our God is a consuming fire, if you really believed that, you would obey Him. Disobedience always has some degree of unbelief at its root, which is why it is utterly inane for anyone to teach, you know, that a person can become a believer in Christ and yet never yield to Him one act of obedience. The person who consistently, habitually, unrepentantly disobeys Christ like that is still in unbelief. It doesn't matter what profession he may have made with his lips. And so the atheism that's described in this psalm is a kind of practical atheism of which all of us are guilty. We have been guilty of it. We still fall into it. Unless you think you are exempt, just listen as we work our way through this psalm, because simply it leaves no room for any of us to think that we're above the kind of ungodliness and unbelief that's being described here. And so with that as background, let's look at the psalm. And I'm going to read it, and as I do, pay careful attention to this theme of the universality of human depravity throughout. You know, we always read the first verse, the fool says in his heart there's no God, those fool, foolish atheists out there. But we're not supposed to read this and think it describes somebody else. The great lesson of this psalm is that every one of us is infected with the kind of corruption that is described here. Every one of us is guilty of everything this psalm describes. So let me read it. To the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? 
There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is His refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of His people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad." Now, let's break down the message of this psalm systematically. It describes the universal corruption of humanity, and Paul interprets it that way very clearly in Romans 3. He uses this psalm to prove that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So the psalm is written to do that, to show how the tendency of the entire human race is toward a kind of atheism, practical atheism sometimes philosophical atheism, and and it graphically describes for us four awful fruits of the ungodliness with which all of us are infected. And so I want to enumerate those four wicked traits of ungodliness for you. We'll deal with them one at a time. The first is folly. Folly. You see this in verses 1 and 2. All forms of disobedience and unbelief are sheer folly because it's foolish to say there's no God. It's equally foolish to live as if there's no God, and it may be the greatest folly of all to profess faith in God and yet live as if He didn't exist. Notice David's words very carefully here. He's speaking about a heart confession. This is not about merely what we say with our lips. You know, Jesus actually condemned people for drawing near to Him with their lips when their heart was far from Him. That's Matthew 15, verse 8. And Jeremiah 12, verse 2 describes Israel in similar terms. Jeremiah told the Lord, you're near in their mouth and far from their heart. That's the very essence of practical atheism, to say in one's heart, no God. Did you realize some of the most religious People in the world are practical atheists. In Isaiah 29, 13, God is condemning the religious Israelites, the most religious people in the nation, for this very thing. Listen to it, Isaiah 29, 13, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And I actually like the New American Standard Bible's translation of that last phrase. Their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote, practical atheism. It's a ceremonial religion, and it wears a religious face, but it is the worst kind of unbelief because it emanates from the heart saying, no, God. And here David David labels it folly, absurdity, senselessness, stupidity, moral and spiritual insanity. Those who live their lives that way, those who who in their hearts deny God, the psalmist classifies them as fools. And it's an appropriate label, label because it's the very height of folly to deny God, especially when you try to gloss it over with lip service. Spurgeon wrote this. He said, To say there is no God is to belie the plainest evidence, which is obstinacy. To oppose the common consent of mankind is stupidity. To stifle consciousness is madness. If the sinner could by his atheism destroy the God whom he hates, there might be some sense, although much wickedness in his infidelity. But as denying the existence of fire does not prevent its burning a man, 
So doubting the existence of God will not stop the judge of all the earth from destroying the rebel who breaks his laws. How does the folly of unbelief and ungodliness manifest itself? David here lists several symptoms of this folly. Abominable works, an utter lack of any good works, and a refusal to seek God. And I want you to see this clearly. God wants us to seek Him. Verse 2 says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. He's looking for people to seek Him. It's our duty to seek Him. It would be the normally expected thing for creatures to seek their Creator and worship Him and honor Him. And Scripture's full of commands for that. Isaiah 8, 19 says, "'Should not a people seek unto their God?' Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, this is one of the most tender appeals of divine grace in all of Scripture, and it says this, "'Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon.'" So again and again, God is urging sinners to seek Him, pleading with them. But do they seek Him? Here's the shocking truth that this psalm is is aiming to teach us. Left to ourselves, not a single one of us would ever seek God, despite all of His tender pleas. And, And no matter how much we experience His goodness, benefit from His grace, regardless of what's reasonable and sensible, not one sinner ever seeks God on his own initiative. In fact, Paul is quoting this psalm in Romans 3, 11 and 12 when he makes that very point. He says, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they become worthless, no one does good, not even one. He's quoting this psalm, he's making that same point. The obstinacy against God from the human heart is universal, which is why Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's John 6, 44. It's not that we're physically unable or, or that we lack the, the capacity or, or the, you know, ability to come, except we do lack the ability because we lack the desire. We're hostile to God. So no one can come unless the Father draws him. The corruption of the human heart is so deep and the unregenerate person's bondage to sin is so thorough that really no matter what incentive we are given, no matter how warm the divine appeal, no one ever actually seeks God on his own initiative. It's hard for evangelicals to to grasp that, I think, especially in our generation because for for decades we've been obsessed with the idea of seeker-sensitive worship. Evangelical books and, and ministry philosophy has homed in on that idea, the idea that there are lots of people out there who are truly and sincerely seeking God, and if we can just be nice enough or persuasive enough, we ought to be able to talk them into the kingdom. And so churches try to tone down the offense of the gospel. They try to make unbelievers comfortable with Christianity, thinking that if we could just attract some of these people out there, they're, they're really seeking. But Scripture is clear, there is no one who on his own initiative truly seeks God. No one. And the psalm is emphatic about that. 
This is a difficult truth because we all know people who seem to be seeking. What about them? And there, there certainly is an abundance of people today who claim they're seeking God. What about all those people? What are we th- supposed to think about them? Are they self-deceived? Or are, they, are they lying about seeking God? And what about the many Christians who are prepared to testify that they sought God and that's how they came to faith in Christ? Maybe you look back even in your own life on a time before your salvation when you believe you were seeking God. How do you reconcile all of that with what this psalm says? Well, first of all, it's important to see that most people who claim to be seeking God really aren't. Some of them are lying, but most of them, I think, are self-deceived. They're seeking a God who exists only in their own imaginations. They want a different God from the one who reveals Himself in Scripture. They're looking for a less demanding or more sin-tolerant supreme being. They sense their need for spiritual healing and completeness, but they would prefer to get it by some means that doesn't involve conviction and repentance and the confession of sin. I've spent some time over the years ministering in India, and, and that nation is filled with people who are seeking alternative gods. They'll follow human gurus of all kinds. They've invented every imaginable kind of religion. Some worship animals or demonic beings, but they're all looking for anything but the God who has revealed Himself in Scripture, which is precisely the path the Apostle Paul says unbelief always takes. This is the point of Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's the kind of seeking people do. They're seeking a different God. Now, just a few verses earlier than this, Paul has said that there is some knowledge of the true God that's innate in the human heart. God made us know Him. He made us to know Him and to reflect His glory, and He implanted some rudimentary knowledge about Himself in our hearts, which is why we all have an instinctive sense of things like beauty and justice and good and evil and guilt, concepts that mere animals would never think of or appreciate. You know, when is the last time you saw a dog admire the sky at sunset? We had a beagle for years. He was our beloved family mascot. He's departed this world, gone to wherever dogs go when they die. I'm pretty sure it's not the good place. But the thing, the main thing my beagle had a profound admiration for was the back of his own eyelids, you know? He had no sense of... of, uh, the majesty of nature. He had no awe when he looked at nature. He had no real moral values, no appreciation of the splendor of the night sky, no concept of the glory of God as it's revealed in nature. I loved him, but he didn't have that spiritual awareness. But that knowledge, Scripture says, is built into every sentient human heart. Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, that is, all humanity, are without excuse. And it's right at that very point in the text where Paul says, although they knew God, they didn't glorify Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their understanding and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them over to a debased mind. And notice that Paul in Romans, just like the psalmist here, labels this rebellion against the knowledge of God, this attempt to suppress the knowledge of the true God, he labels it folly, just like our psalm. And corrupted religion, that is everything from the worship of birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things to the most elegant kind of human moralism, all man-made religion, is ultimately the worst and most deadly kind of folly because it pretends to be worship but it opposes the true God at the most fundamental level. You want to know why I hate false religion? That's why. There really isn't any worse sin. The the closest parallel I can think of would be those insects who hide from the light in the daytime and then kill themselves trying to fly into an artificial light at night. Did you ever wonder about that? Why is it that these insects that only come out at night are always attracted to light bulbs. You know, you'd think if light was what they wanted, they'd be daytime insects. (laughs) Instead, they stay hidden from the sun all day, and then after dark, they buzz around every sort of artificial light they can find, often burning themselves to death by coming too close to the light bulb. That's exactly the way with people and false religion. People in sin will go to any extreme to avoid the true God. According to John 3.19, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. But then they mollify themselves and, and try to salve their guilty consciences by following after false religion, even at the price of losing their souls for eternity. And again, all of us have this tendency. No one truly seeks God on their own initiative. And in fact, this is a remarkable thing. If you have come to genuine faith in Christ, if you, even if you thought there was a time when you were seeking Him, the truth is it was He who was seeking and drawing you. I already read in John 6, 44, where Jesus said plainly that no one can come to Him without being drawn by God. Here's another verse from that same context, John 6, 45, no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. Why can't they come? because their hearts are so sinful, they won't come, they refuse. Jesus told the Pharisees in John 5.40, you refuse to come to Me that you might have life. And that reflects the stubborn refusal that is inherent in every fallen heart. In the words of our text, Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God but they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So how is it that we come to Christ? Those of us who love Him and trust Him, how did we find Him if it was against our nature to seek Him? There's a famous 
Presbyterian hymn that I know I've, I've quoted before because it's one of my favorites. It was written about this very topic. The hymn says it like this, I sought the Lord, but afterward I knew He moved my soul to seek Him seeking me. It was not I who found, O Savior true, no, I was found of Thee. So if you sought Christ, you can know with certainty that He sought you first and drew you to Himself. We love Him because He first loved us. That's 1 John 4.19. You didn't become a Christian because you're a better person or because you're any less of a fool than the atheist who still says there's no God. Don't take credit for that yourself. You didn't come to Jesus because you set out on a quest to find Him. He Himself testifies, I have been found by those who did not seek Me. I have shown Myself to those who did not ask for Me. That's Romans 10.20, and it's a reference to a famous prophecy from Isaiah chapter 65. In fact, listen to it in Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 5. I'll read it from the New American Standard Bible. And this is God speaking, but more accurately, this is Christ speaking prophetically, and He says, I permitted Myself to be sought by those who did not ask for Me. I permitted Myself to be found by those who did not seek Me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on My name. I have spread out My hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke Me to My face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day." And the rebellious tendency, in other words, these people go after false religion instead of seeking the true God. That is a tendency that is by no means unique to Israel. In fact, that's the point of our text. Incorrigible rebellion against God is the universal problem of humanity, and every single person is guilty of it. And so it's only by the grace of God that you were drawn to Him and given spiritual eyes to see the folly of atheism, especially practical atheism, is universal. It's the fruit of our fallenness. It's a natural and inevitable byproduct of ungodliness, folly. So that's the first fruit of ungodliness, folly. Here's a second one, filthiness. You see this in verse 3. And remember, this is talking about each and every one of us in our fallen, unregenerate state. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Well, there is no good where there is no God, right? I mean, that makes sense. Behavior is inextricably linked to belief. Practice always grows out of principles, as we're seeing in every facet of our culture. You can't reject God without reaping the fruit of wickedness. And verse 3 calls it filthiness. That's the exact word you find in the King James Version. They are all gone aside. They are together become filthy. And the Hebrew word that's translated filthy there literally means stinking. It evokes the image of the worst sort of putrid, rotting, stinking corruption. That is what wickedness is like in the, in the sight of God. It's a stench in His nostrils. And make no mistake, wherever God is scorned and rejected, ungodly behavior will rule. It's the problem we face in our nation right now. 
Those who doubt God will inevitably disobey Him. Atheistic thoughts about God always lead to ungodly behavior. Because after all, if there's no God, there's no basis for the concept of right and wrong, good and evil. You reject God, you have rejected every reason for ethical and moral standards. Because if there is no God, how can there be any meaningful guilt attached to sin? There's no accountability, and therefore nothing is really right or wrong, and the horrible dangers of that sort of thinking are manifest today everywhere you turn. In fact, look at how bleak a picture of humanity is painted by these verses. Verse 1, they are corrupt. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Verse 4, they are evildoers who eat up My people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. In other words, they thrive on the most destructive kinds of wickedness, including persecution of those who are redeemed, as if this is the main staple of their diet, opposition to God. Again, Paul makes clear in Romans 3 that these verses, they're not limited to just one class of humanity. They apply universally to all of us. He's saying, this is our natural tendency. This is how we are apart from the grace of God. The only means we have to escape the folly and the filthiness that's described here is God's grace, because He's the only one who can lift us up out of the miry clay and set our feet on a rock. Here's a third fruit of ungodliness, fear. Look at verse 5, there they are in great terror. And in fact, you remember I mentioned Psalm 53 is a close cousin of this one. They're almost identical. The parallel verse in Psalm 53 says this, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. In other words, the ungodly live in fear even when there's no cause for fear, and ironically, what they ought to fear, they don't. Romans 3.18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. But one of the fruits of ungodliness is nevertheless fear. It's a cowardly, craven fear, not the true fear of God. See, there are two kinds of fear described in Scripture. One is the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. In Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Psalm 111 verse 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. But here in Psalm 14, David has already established that he is describing people who reject God. They have no legitimate fear of him. They don't keep his commandments. They don't praise him. Therefore, they are left with an irrational, ungodly kind of fear. It's a coward's fear. It seethes with hatred of God rather than reverence for Him. Listen to Spurgeon again. He says, "'Notwithstanding their real cowardice, the wicked put on the lion's skin and lord it over the Lord's poor ones. Although they are fools themselves, they mock at the truly wise as if the folly were on their side.' 
But this is what might be expected, for how should brutish minds appreciate excellence? And how can those who have owl's eyes admire the sun? The special point and butt of their jest seems to be the confidence of the godly in their Lord. What can your God do for you now? Who is that God that can deliver you out of our hand? Where's the reward of all your praying and beseeching? Taunting questions of this sort they thrust in the faces of weak but gracious souls and tempt them to feel ashamed of their refuge. I think Spurgeon was reading Twitter, frankly, because you see that kind of stuff all the time where unbelieving and wicked people mock the faith of the faithful. This is what verse 6 means, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is His refuge. Although the ungodly secretly tremble in themselves with a kind of craven fear, they mock and heap scorn on the heads of those who find their refuge in the Lord. They pretend it's a foolish thing to trust God, when in reality the most foolish thing of all is not to trust Him. Sometimes it appears to us from the human perspective as if the enemies of God have virtually triumphed. You know, the whole society in which we live is in bondage to exactly the kind of philosophical and practical atheism that is described here in this psalm. And there may be times when the people of God are tempted to despair, you know, thinking, what if evil ultimately triumphs over the purpose and the plan of God? What are we going to do then? But the truth is, that will never be. No matter how pervasive evil appears to be, it can never triumph over the plan of God. Human history is proof of that. Biblical prophecy is the guarantee of it. And that brings us to the fourth and ultimate fruit of ungodliness. Number four, failure. Failure. Look at verse 7, and I'm reading again from the New American Standard Bible because I just prefer the way this verse is translated here. The ESV says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of His people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. That's what I read earlier. It sounds like that's a wish, like a subjunctive. But the New American Standard translates it properly, I think, as a settled indicative. It says this, when the Lord restores His captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. There's a note of emphatic triumphalism in the declaration. There's a certainty in those words that cannot be shaken by doubt. God will ultimately deliver His people, and that means the ungodly will ultimately fail. The sort of atheism described in this psalm will not be found in hell. An old Puritan commentary on this psalm contains this little poem, this little ditty. On earth are atheists many, in hell there is not any. I like that. The ultimate failure of the ungodly is as certain as the ultimate triumph of God. God will redeem His people from their captivity, and that spells ultimate doom for those who hate God. That's why it's so foolish to say no to God. No matter how much it appears in this life that the wicked prosper and they enjoy success, the truth is the ultimate end of all human wickedness is going to be nothing but failure and defeat, which is perhaps the main reason why ungodliness is utter folly. In both Joshua 1 verse 8 and Psalm, verse, uh, Psalm 1, 
Scripture promises success and spiritual prosperity to those who love the Lord and meditate on His Word. But Psalm 1 goes on to say, the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. First Timothy 6, verse 6 says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, but there is no gain whatsoever in the long run for ungodliness. Its ultimate end is always only failure, abject eternal failure. All right, now, it's tempting to read a passage like this and imagine that, you know, this applies to somebody else. We all tend to think of the most wicked people we know when we read a song, psalm like this and, and we think, yep, that, that applies to that guy. But I want to stress again that the main thrust of this passage is designed to teach the universality of human wickedness. Look again at verses 2 and 3, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And again, when Paul cites this passage in Romans 3, that's the point he's stressing. It's not a diatribe against militant atheism. Paul in Romans 3 is trying to show us that this is the verdict against all of us. We are all condemned by this psalm. We are all guilty of the ungodliness that's described here. We are all in the same sinking boat, and according to Scripture, there's absolutely nothing we can do to change ourselves, which means that our only hope is divine grace, because God can change our hearts. In Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, notice that this is God who makes the change. He's not, he's not telling us to change ourselves. He's promising that He will change us because He alone can transform us. That's the very passage of Scripture Jesus referred to when He was talking to Nicodemus about the new birth. Remember, He said to Nicodemus in John 3.10, are you the teacher of Israel and, and you don't understand these things? You must be born again. Nicodemus should have known about the doctrine of human depravity. He should have known of his personal need to be regenerated. He should have known that only God can implant a new heart and a new and put new righteous desires in a person, because all of that was taught in the law and the Psalms and the prophets. And the gospel then simply tells us how God made that salvation possible. And here's how. Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of our sin and wickedness. Having lived a perfect life of flawless obedience to the law of God, He died the death of a sinner, not for His own sins, because although Scripture says He was tempted as we are, that is, He was put to the test, He was subjected to every enticement, and yet He was totally without sin. According to Hebrews 4.15, He is holy 
innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He didn't even have a desire for sinful things. In the words of Hebrews 7.26, he knew no sin, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Peter agrees, 1 Peter 1.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. In other words, he was perfect in every way. So why did he die? Why was he crucified? Verse 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And he offers his perfect life in exchange for our sin. That's the gospel. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's 1 Peter 1.18. We who don't seek, yet He redeems us and brings us to God. We're not to think that we can reform ourselves enough to earn the favor of God. The only hope for the person who is described in this psalm is the grace of God. God alone can give us a new heart and new godly desires. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." That's Titus 3, verses 5 and 6. And that salvation comes freely to those who believe. Atheism, the deliberate philosophical atheism and the, the practical religious atheism, it will damn you and imprison you forever in utter bondage to folly, filthiness, fear, and failure. And the opposite is faith, to trust in the Lord and trust in Him alone as your Savior. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the way of salvation, and that's the good news of the gospel of Christ. It's the only remedy for the hopeless corruption and the vile depravity that is described in this psalm. Let's pray. Father, it is true, and we confess that the natural proclivity of our hearts is toward unbelief, a kind of atheism. Grant us faith that we may believe and that we may find the salvation that comes out of Zion through Christ for each one who believes. Give us strength to obey. Give us the desire for Your righteousness. Change our hearts by that miracle of regeneration through Christ. May we abandon all self-confidence and yield all the praise and glory to You where it rightfully belongs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.